Good morning, everybody. Do you know, in the traditional church, the Sunday after Easter is called Low Sunday. And uh, I bet some of you are coming here thinking, where's the worship? What's happening? Maybe you just kind of crawled in at quarter two, thinking coffee, worship. <laughs> I'll be all right. And then you've come in here and gone, what's going on? Um, we're going to have some worship. We're going to worship at the end. But I want to talk first. Um, if you're in the youth here today, I have a special challenge for you. Okay, we have no youth. You are leashed today, not unleashed. Um, but, um, but if you're in the youth, I have about 25 of these questionnaires. And I'd love you to come and get one and a pen. And throughout the talk, Zach, are you going to give them out? Brilliant. Zach's actually going to give them out to spare you the embarrassment of coming to the front. Um, And this is just for the youth. It's not for anybody else. And during the talk, you have to listen carefully and you have to fill in some of the answers on the sheet as I talk. And if you bring me a completed sheet, there's one of these for you at the end. Just the youth. I have about five of these cream eggs spare. So if anybody else wants to come and present me a good good case why they should have one, um, at at the end, I'll be interested in your creative... Uh, suggestions. So I want to talk today about worship. Can you put the first slide up for me? I've called this talk Draw Near. Okay, and and again that will become obvious why in a second. Um, Worship is the main reason that we gather on a Sunday here. Although we often refer to the singing part of our service as worship, or the worship time, actually everything we do is worship. Celebrating and honouring Mervyn and Claire and all of the streams of hope, that's all worship. Because it's all to the glory of God. When we teach the Bible, that's worship. When we pray for one another and minister, that's worship. When we share family news, that's worship. Every part of what we try and do here on a Sunday, and not just on a Sunday, is about giving glory and honour to God. And therefore it's worship. In today's culture, a church might be known because of its style of worship. Maybe you came here today because something about the way that we like to worship connects with you. It's certainly one of the key ways in which any church might define its vision and its values. And that's as true for us here as anyone else. But we do live in a consumer culture, don't we? Where if you actually want to go and experience a certain type of worship, you probably can pretty much get up and do a bit of research and choose to do that. So you might have got up this morning, Sunday morning, it's a beautiful day. I'd like to hear a four-part choir singing some well-loved hymns of the ancient church in a, a wonderful old inspiring building with fantastic reverb all around. And if, you, if that's what you thought, well, you probably won't be here. You'll probably be in the cathedral enjoying their service with their awesome choir. Or maybe... You woke up and thought, actually, what I really like to do is hear this fantastic rocking band, you know, looking really good, singing some very loud, anthemic, uplifting songs, great guitar, brilliant light show, awesome visuals. I want to jump and mosh along with hundreds of others, just like at a gig. And if that was what you were thinking, then you probably drove up to London and went up to Hillsongs. Or maybe you thought, I'd like to go somewhere reasonably local and down to earth where the welcome is warm and the coffee's all right and the building is functional and spacious and the band look like real people and uh, (laughs) worship is generally accessible and I feel like I can connect with God there. In which case, you probably thought, I've come to the vineyard this morning. (laughs) Now, I'm playing a little bit and obviously there's so much more to all of those churches than just their music style. There's a whole bunch of things going on regarding calling and philosophy of ministry and emphasis on what each church is called by God to do. 
And don't forget as well, there's the leader's dress code and haircut to take into consideration. That's very important. But I wonder what made you choose to come here today. What is it about the way that we worship here that particularly draws you or drew you today? Just turn to your neighbour and just, just share that just for a minute. What was it that brought you here today? Or what was it that brings you here? What is it about what we do? And youth, that's the first question on your sheet. Make a note. What is it that draws you here? Okay. Anybody want to anybody wanna share with us, with us all? You don't have to. Anybody want to share with us all? What brought you here today? Maybe, actually, maybe there are some of you who just didn't choose to come here today. Maybe you were dragged here. Maybe there was no... Re- there was no... I can see some of you going, it's a good point. Why did I come? <laughs> if you get up and walk out now, I'll know what's gone on. <laughs> of course, with the internet now, we can even experience worship from all around the world in the privacy of our own homes. You know, Songs of Praise, God TV, YouTube, Bethel. We can dial into the worship experience from virtually anywhere, virtually anytime, which is fantastic and also challenging. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love that stuff. Some of the songs that I see on the internet and on YouTube, Bethel, Hill Songs, Jesus Culture, Worship Central, the, the songs are wonderful. The worship experience is wonderful. I love to sing those songs, and it's amazing that we can access them online. But there is a serious point here, which is that if we're not careful, the consumer culture that's around us in society can creep upon us in the church as well, in such a way that we forget what worship is really about. And that it's not primarily an experience for us to pick or choose or critique as we want to. It's also, it's all about God. And we sometimes forget that. Worship is first and foremost for God. It's all about him. It actually doesn't matter what language, style, dress code, building or congregation we choose to be part of in regards to how God views our worship. Our worship has very little, if any, focus on us but a very big focus on him. And sometimes we can lose sight of that. And today I want us to look at a passage in the Bible which will help us keep our focus on why it is that we can draw near to God and how it is that we're encouraged to do so. You see, if you look worship up in the Bible, the word is defined as showing reverence and adoration. And as believers, as Christians, we're instructed to worship God. Jesus sums it up here. He says, this is in Matthew, love the Lord your God. He's kind of basically summing up the commandments. And he says, the two greatest commandments are this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's our priority. That's our instruction. That's our command. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, said this, our heart's desire should be to worship God. We have been designed by him for this purpose. And if we don't worship God, well, we're going to worship something or someone else. We have been made to worship. We are designed with that capacity. The question is, who or what do we worship? Where do we place the most value? Who or what do we give our time and energy to and our money to? The Bible has countless references to worship, countless exhortations and encouragements. I note it doesn't have many specific guidelines on musical style. Although it does talk about instruments, singing, dancing and tambourines. 
But there are plenty of references to character and heart. And the Psalms are full of encouragements to praise and worship God, to look to him, to draw near to him in all circumstances. Later in the summer, we're going to do a series on Psalms where we look into that in a bit more detail. But today I want to look at Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible, turn up Hebrews chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages. The actual title of the passage is A Call to Persevere in Faith. But I think it's more about worship than anything else. And we're going to look at Hebrews 10. Um, I've got it on two slides here. It's 19 to 25. It's about six verses. Have it open in your Bible as well. This is a call to persevere. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Doesn't that sound great? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. See, that sounds like worship to me. That sounds like what I try and do every Sunday. And other times too. There's a lot in this passage. It's poetic. It's beautiful. It's encouraging and uplifting. And there's also a lot of theology in there. And it summarizes what Jesus has done. And why it's even possible for us to contemplate coming close to God in worship. And in order to fully explain this passage and its significance, we need to go back to the Old Testament and understand a little bit about Old Testament worship, which was a whole different ball game to what it is now, and altogether a more bloody affair. The next little section of this talk has a 12A rating on it. It involved a lot of animal sacrifices. And in order to fully understand that, we need to kind of understand a little bit about how worship worked for God's people before the time of Jesus. In the temple, or what was before the temple, was something called a tabernacle. Oh, hello. How's that happened? A tabernacle. Here's a picture, or a diagram, of the Jerusalem temple. But it was the same principle even before they built the temple, just sort of in a, in a tent version. And uh, this is a cutaway of what the temple looked like. But basically, it's all very beautiful and very ornate. And you've got the outer courts, which are these bits around here, and... Pretty much that's where you and me would have gone, the common people, the the everyday people. That's where they would have gone to make their sacrifices. And then you go in through the door and you've got the main body of the temple. And that's where the priests would go. And that's where they would make their sacrifices. And then in the back bit, the bit where you can see the sort of uh, winged creatures, there's a a sort of screen, a curtain supposed to be there. It's not there because it's been cut away, just to show you. But in there is a place called the Holy of Holies. And that is God's dwelling place on earth. That is where the Ark of the Covenant rested. That is basically where God would presence himself on the earth. In a sense, that was heaven on earth. And that place was so special and so set apart and so amazing that nobody was allowed in there apart from once a year, one priest could go in there. I'll explain more about that in a minute. 
there were times when God's presence, we read in the Bible, there's a bit in 1 Kings, when they opened the temple, where it seemed like the presence of God was manifest all around and they saw a cloud. But most of the time, God's presence was set apart. And that's where he, that's where he was. And the priest's job was to mediate between the people and God. He would represent God to the people and he would represent the people to God. And around the temple, the worship looked like basically a whole load of butchery going on. Here's a sort of slightly sanitized version of what it might have looked like. Okay, because everyone had to bring their animals to sacrifice. Because the blood that was shed by the animals was what God required. Here's a more modern picture that's, if you're a bit squeamish, you might want to look. But here's a more modern picture that I think probably captures the mood a bit better. Okay? I think it was probably more like that. I did tell you I had a 12A rating. Now, when I think of Old Testament worship, two contrasting pictures, experiences come into my mind. One is of just going to one of the most amazing barbecues ever. I mean, you know, it's a sunny day and there's some amazing meat cooking on the barbecue. You know what that smells like, don't you? Unless you're a vegetarian, in which case, ignore what I'm saying. But, you, 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 you know, I once, went, I once went to South Africa on a little tour and, and, and they love their barbecues in South Africa. And, uh, and, and everywhere we went, we were given a braai, a barbecue. Every, literally, we didn't see a vegetable in five days that we were there because everywhere when they were like, oh, come on, it's great to see you, we're having a braai. And we would be given more and more lovely, beautiful barbecued sausage. Um, on the other hand, the other image that comes to my mind is where I used to work in Birmingham. Just down the road was a halal slaughterhouse. And twice a day, every day, two lorry loads of sheep came past the office on the way to the slaughterhouse. And they went that way and they went in and they never came out. Well, they did come out, actually, but that was around the other side and we couldn't see that. And that was in freezer vans. And that's all fine because animals have to be killed somewhere. But the image that comes to my mind is just when it's a really hot day, you could smell the blood in the air. And that is what perhaps I wonder what it might have smelled like in the temple. And there were various special festivals. And the most important festival was something called the atonement ritual. And this happened... Every year, once a year, and it's described in Leviticus and chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible and you want to look back, I'm just going to read a few verses that just kind of describe what this ritual was all about. This Jewish ritual was what God required to cleanse and forgive and deal with people's sin. This is Leviticus and chapter 16, and I'm going to read verse 7. And it says, The high priest is to take two goats... And present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This is back in the tabernacle days, before they'd built the temple. He's to cast lots for the two goats. One's for the Lord, and the other is for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice that for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Jumping down to verse 15. He shall then slaughter the first goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. This is right into the Holy of Holies. And do with it as he does with other, with the bull's blood and as he does with other sacrifices. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And in front of it. And in this way, the priest will make atonement for the most holy place 
because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites and whatever their sins have been. So in other words, the priest's job was to kill this goat, sprinkle the blood and make atonement for the sins of the people. Just jumping down to the end of verse 17. It says that all of this goes on. There's a whole bunch of ritual that goes on here that we won't go into. And it says, having made atonement for himself, this is what the priest's job was, to make atonement for himself. This is the end of verse 17. For his household and for the whole community of Israel. And just jump to verse 20. And it says that when Aaron, who was the high priest, had finished making atonement for the most holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, then... He brings forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites and put them on the goat's head and send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of somebody who's been appointed for the task. So some guy gets the job of leading this goat out of the camp and as far away from the camp as possible so that it can't find its way back. And then he releases it and sends it go. And that's the scapegoat. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. The goat gets released into the wilderness. And that is how God instructed his people to deal with their sins year after year. This ritual enabled them to be forgiven, to make a new start, to wipe the slate clean. It was costly, it was messy, and it was involved. But it is what God required. It's what God required for them to meet his standards. But as you know, all of that changed with Jesus. And maybe you can see the connections between this passage and what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul, in the New Testament, uses the language of atonement even just to describe Jesus. So Romans 3.25, Paul says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. No longer do you need these two goats. Jesus has done the job. Jesus has done the job of both of them. And that's what this passage in Hebrews is referring to. And actually, the writer of Hebrews describes quite a lot of this in detail before this passage. And this passage in chapter 10 really sums up a lot of the theology that he's been unpacking and explaining. And there are... These verses are a really brilliant summary of much of the previous nine or ten chapters. There is an encouragement here that we can enter the most holy place with confidence. We have confidence to go to God. We have confidence to come and worship him. Now that wasn't the case before. Nobody was allowed to enter the most holy place. If you were a commoner like us, you wouldn't even get into the, into the temple. Jesus has changed it. It's no longer just the priest that enters, but all of us. How can that happen? How is it that Jesus makes this way for us to connect with God? There are three reasons summarized here. I've picked them out in bold. The blood of Jesus, the curtain that is his body, and a great high priest. Let's look at those three. So we can enter God's presence with confidence by the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus' death that we celebrated last Sunday, Easter Sunday, the shedding of his own blood enabled us, enabled him and us to be cleansed from sin, forgiven, given a restart. 
His sacrifice allows us to be cleansed. His blood takes the place of the, the animal sacrifice. Jesus could now enter the most holy place, the presence of God. It says that's where he is now. He sits at God's right hand. He did that not for himself. He didn't need to, but he did it on our behalf. In Hebrews 9 and verse 12, just the chapter before, it says that Jesus did not enter by means of blood and goats, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross enables us to come to God for a restart, to be cleansed. It also says that he came through, the, we come into God's presence through the curtain that is his body. That's a weird image, isn't it? The curtain that is Jesus' body. You see, as I said before, God's presence in the Holy of Holies was always hidden behind this curtain. It was separated and no one but the priest could go through. But in the Easter story, we read that at the point that Jesus died, the curtain is torn in two. The curtain in the temple rips in two from top to bottom. This is highly significant. Highly significant because the curtain is no longer needed. And in fact, the temple is no longer needed. Because God's presence is no longer limited to one special place. As Jesus had already demonstrated in his life, the kingdom is at hand. God's presence is close. It's here. God's life and power is available to all of us. And theologically, Jesus made the way. He symbolically became the curtain. So that's what it means. See, Jesus' death for us made this new way into God's presence. And the third reason that the writer of Hebrews gives is because we've got a great high priest. And this is a big theme in Hebrews, the, the theme of Jesus as the high priest. It's, it's there throughout, but verse, chapter 2, verse 17 sums it up. He says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, Jesus this is, fully human in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So we can come into God's presence with utter, utter confidence. Because of what Jesus did. Because of what Jesus did through his blood, through this curtain that he became, and because he is our high priest. God's people no longer need a priest to mediate for them. My job as the leader of this church is not to go to God on your behalf and for me to represent that's not how it works. You go on your own. We all go on our own. That's not how it works. I'm not saying there's no need for leadership. That's something different. But the priestly role Jesus has taken. He is the ultimate go-between. And his death enables us to go directly to God. Without the need for any of this constant ritual. Isn't that fantastic? Now, you're either looking at me going, I don't get it. Or you're looking at me going, yes, that's amazing. There's a sort of stunned sort of <laughs> something. I'm hoping it's the second. Um, commenting on the Leviticus passage, Nicky Gumbel, who um, some of you might use his app, the Bible in One Year app. And he talked about this just a, few, a couple of weeks ago. Um, 
And he talks about that passage in Leviticus, because we, we were reading through Leviticus, and it says, the, this is Nicky Gumbel speaking about it, and he's, taught, he's quoting various New Testament passages. He says, the Apostle Peter writes of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He is the one who sends our sins away as far as the east is from the west. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nicky Gumbel goes on to say, an amazing change has taken place in our relationship with God. Through Jesus, we can now enter into the Holy of Holies every day. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and know that we will always be welcome. So Jesus did this. Jesus made the way for us to come to God. He took the place of the priest and the one goat and the other goat. He was the sacrifice and he was the scapegoat and he was the priest. Isn't that amazing? And the question is, what are we going to do about that? Because of what Jesus has done, we can enter into God's presence with confidence. And the passage goes on to describe three things that we're encouraged to do. Three things that the, the writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, because of all that, now do this. And there are three things, and again, I've put them in bold. Draw near to God, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it's lovely, this little bit at the end, all the more as you see the day approaching, the day. You know that when we worship, we're joining in with the worship that goes on in heaven all the time. Because it's outside of time. And once you start to think of God being outside of time, I don't know about you, but it just kind of messes with my head, so I'm not going to go there too much. Because it's, you know, but, but it's there, the day. There will be a day when we bow before the Lord. And every time we get to worship is a practice for that. And so what are we encouraged to do? We're encouraged to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance, this is verse 22, that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, a sincere heart implies to me anyway, humility and reality. Not pretending or hiding as we come before God. Not putting on a show for God or for anyone else who's around, but just being real. You know, if you come to church and you stand in the, in the chairs and you worship God like this, and you don't do that at home, then there's something not quite authentic about that. If you come to church and play your guitar and stand up and lead worship and you don't do that at home, there's something not authentic about that. If you come to church and you wave a flag around and you don't do that at home, there's something slightly lacking in authenticity. We're not putting on a show for God or for anyone else. There's a something about coming with a sincere and a humble heart, which implies a submissiveness to God. That without the cleansing work of Jesus in our lives, we have no right to even think about. We don't come to God because of anything that we've done. We come because of what Jesus has done. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get, my, I get this out of perspective. And I find myself dwelling on the great things that I've done for God. You know, the awesome sermon that I preached. Or the extra money I gave away. Or the time I spent helping someone who really needed it. Or the amazing family that I've raised. Or the businesses that I've started. Or the brilliant job I've done at work for my customers. All of that stuff's important. 
And there's nothing wrong with being successful or doing things well. But sometimes we can get a bit carried away and think that because of something that we've done, that's what entitles us to come to God. And yet that's just not true. Because although God thinks we're amazing and he's really crazy about us, all of us have failed his standards. And the only way we can approach him is by recognising that we didn't live up to his expectations and that we can only come to him because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's the place to live in. A place of humility, a place of pure-heartedness. That's why we take communion regularly. We're not going to do it today, we did last week. But that's why we do it, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. That's why there's an encouragement from Jesus about being washed in water. There's a, there's a, there's a reference there to baptism. The instruction is, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, then baptism is something that Jesus commands or instructs and encourages and challenges you to do. To make a public declaration of your faith. To go symbolically down into the water and up again. Say, I'm clean. I'm washed. I'm leaving that old stuff behind. We've got a baptism service coming up in two or three months. If you haven't been baptised, if God's doing something in your life, then come talk to us. We'd love to speak to you about that. We can only enter his presence and sing the songs that we get to sing and live the life that we live because of what he's done for us. And I love that image of being sprinkled is what it says in verse 22 because it reminds me of being in the shower and i take a shower most days every day most days so every day every day now don't think about this too hard but what that says to me is it's about taking a shower in the blood of jesus now that's one for you horror fanatics to uh, think about and it, okay, it, practically it doesn't really work as a metaphor or an image, but actually, spiritually, I think it really does. Every day, to take a shower in the blood of Jesus and remind ourselves that it's only because of what he did that we can come to him. Spending a bit of time each day reflecting on what he's done for us. That's a really good thing to do. Here's someone who did that. This is St. Augustine. And this is something he wrote. A really lovely meditation. He says, great are you, O Lord, and worthy of high praise. Great is your strength, and of your wisdom there is no counting. Even man is, in his own way, a part of your creation, and longs to praise you. You stir us up to take delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. And Augustine knew the value of spending time every day just thinking about what Jesus has done. Just thinking about who we are. Just drawing near. And that's what we're going to do in a minute. But just before we do, the Bible encourages us also, this passage, not just to draw near, but to hold fast. This is verse 23. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And one of the key things that happens as we worship God is that he reveals his love and his truth and his heart to us afresh. And as we worship, we regain his perspective on our lives. And that enables us to face our own issues in a different light. When it says the hope we profess, what it's getting at there is the things that we know to be true about God. The reasons that we have to always maintain an eternal, hope-filled perspective. His love, 
his kindness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, protection and generosity and all of the rest. These truths are what we reflect on as we explore our talks in the Bible every Sunday, but they're also bound up in the words of the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning and whenever we gather to worship. Now, a little bit later, in about a month and a half's time, we're going to do a series on who the vineyard is. And at that point, I want to talk a bit more specifically about our worship values and, um, and why it is that we worship the way that we do. Just to say this, though, we do deliberately choose our songs quite carefully here because we know that the words we sing will have an impact. It's the words of the songs that help reveal the truth about God to us. If I'm being utterly honest with you, in six months' time, you probably won't remember this talk, but you might well remember the words of the songs that we sing this morning. And when we're going about our everyday lives, it can be so easy to lose that God perspective, to lose sight of that truth. And particularly if things are quite tough right now. So it's only when I come to worship that I gain the strength to hold unswervingly to the hope and the truth that I know deep in my heart, but sometimes don't actually feel. Can you relate to that? In a sense, in, in that sense, it's like any significant relationship. It's something that I choose to do whether or not I'm feeling it. You might have heard love is a decision. Sometimes loving God is a decision and worshipping is a decision. And there have been periods of time in my life when I've needed to regain my perspective. Often, sometimes several times a day. I remember after my dad died, I made this playlist. And it just had a few songs on it that really helped me. And one of them was one of these songs that questions, how can this be that? How can this be true? How can that be true? And then the chorus says, and in my heart, I know that you're alive. And I know that I'm yours forever. And I would listen to that over and over and I'd go, yeah, that's right. That's right. And it enables me to hold to the hope that I, I know to be true. So whatever's going wrong, whoever's hurt you, whatever pain you're in, Whatever crisis is happening in your life or among your family and friends, I want to encourage us. Let's worship God first and foremost and regularly as the main way of holding on to our perspective. You know, whatever that takes for you, get to church, get to a life group, meet with friends, put on a CD. Somebody who Steve knows well, this guy, Sean, I don't even know how you say his name. Foyt, is it? This is the guy who set up Burn. And, uh, and he came to Winchester and he spoke and he said this, our primary identity is as a worshippers, sons and daughters of God, worshipping forever before his throne. Let's worship. And the last little part of this verse is to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Spur one another on, stir one another up, provoke one another, prompt one another. And this is about maintaining a community perspective on worship. And the advice from this writer is specific to some people who clearly had decided they didn't want to meet with the rest of the community. Now, I don't know why that was. Maybe they got cheesed off or depressed. More likely they'd fallen out with somebody in church and decided they didn't want to go anymore. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe they were just so busy sharing the gospel and doing kingdom stuff that they didn't have time to go to church. Whatever it was, they were missing out. And the, whatever, the encouragement is clear. That there is something that happens when we worship together as a community of faith that's powerful and transformational. And I mean all of worship. The corporate singing worship that we do and 
all the activity that we do in the name of God. Because growth happens in the context of relationships, sometimes dramatically, but mostly incrementally. That's why we meet together. I was at the beach this week and I noticed some stones a bit like this. And they were very, very smooth. And particularly smooth were the ones that were sort of below the waterline. You know, where the tide would come up and go back down and come up and go back down. And I noticed just how beautifully smooth they were. And I thought they've probably been there for centuries. And had their edges knocked off and chipped off. And as they've bashed together, you know, plus twice a day, every day, the tide has washed up over them and washed back and washed up over them and washed back. They've been immersed in the water. And I just loved, you know, you know when you're at the seaside and there's a, a stony beach and, you, you know, the, t- the, the wave comes in and then just as it kind of tracks back over the stones, you hear this beautiful crackling sound. Do you know what I mean? And you hear the sound of the water dragging back over the stones. And I love that sound. And I just thought to myself, that is actually a picture of church. Because it's as we're immersed in Jesus and bashing together that we get smoothed off. We got our corners rounded off and we grow. And for some of us, you know, for whatever reason, shift work or family circumstances, you know, we can't make it here that often. That's okay. I'm not here to put any pressure on you. But my encouragement is come to church, be in the presence of God, worship him. Let's do that together. Why don't you guys come up in the band? Because we are going to worship. I just want to read this to you. A friend of ours, um, Leads a small vineyard church. I say it's small. It's been planted a couple of years now in uh, Dunstable and Luton. It's got a fantastic name. It's called the Rock and Redeemer Church. The Rock and Redeemer Vineyard Church. The guy who leads it's a, well, what, ha- however else. He's a musician, of course. Um, he's called Henry. Anyway, he wrote this on his Facebook page about well, just about one of their celebrations that they were doing last year. And I thought it was so great that I kind of made a note of it. He says, bring your kids, family and friends. We're going to worship Jesus because he's worth it. We're going to talk about Jesus because we want to know him more. And we're going to pray to Jesus because he's the one who brings us to life. It's all about Jesus. It may be a little rough around the edges, but it'll be a lot of fun. And for me, that's a fantastic description of what church should be about. So why don't you stand together and we're going to worship God. And as we do that, I just wonder if you need to just ask the Lord, what is it? What step would constitute an intentional engagement in worship for you this morning? Is it simply to get our hearts right and choose to engage and choose to fully enter in? Is it simply just to consider what it is that Jesus has done for us, how he gained access to God for us through his death? And let's just reflect on that. Maybe there's more because worship changes us. Maybe the Lord is encouraging us to reorganize our priorities to come more regularly or to sit further forward in the church or join a team to help make it happen. Maybe he's inviting us to join a life group and get stuck in or make a commitment to financial giving. Whatever the Lord is encouraging you to do by way of expressing your worship, can I encourage us to run into the presence of God? to push in right now, to worship him with all of our hearts, to allow him to reveal the truth to us, to refresh and replenish us.
to bring our stuff to him. All of it. Let's not play games here. Let's be real. And let's ask him to give us his perspective on our lives. And let's expect him to encounter. Let's expect to encounter him and be prepared for that encounter to change us. Be ready to make changes as you walk away from worship. Ask him to speak to you as you come. And let's worship God together. The guys are going to lead us. Youth, if you finish that quiz, you can see me at the end of the service and I'll give you that prize. Let's worship, guys. Father, we come to you because of everything that you've done. We intentionally choose to push into your presence. We draw close. We draw near. We love you. We're grateful to you. Come and lead us as we worship you today.